Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey gang, thanks for joining us at Marriage Therapy Radio. I'm here with Laura. Um, we have a special guest today, mostly because of a question we got from a listener. I'm going to play that question for you right now. And then uh, we'll get in, we'll hear from Bob Navarra, who is one of my favorite therapists in the Gottman Network and who is brilliant in the area of addiction and recovery. Uh, hi, Zach and Laura. Um, I was just wondering if you have any episodes where you talk about alcohol abuse. Um, and how that affects the marriage and how you can move forward uh, with good communication when there might be some alcohol abuse uh, involved. Thank you. Bye. So, yeah, there you have it. Um, here comes Bob Navarra. Uh, stick around. Hey, everybody. So this is it. We're here with uh, Laura, who's always... I'm here. Uh, oh, yeah. Thanks for coming back. Yeah. Um, we've been on the road and moving across the world and all that stuff. But, it's been bonkers. Um, it really has been. And um, and we're here together with uh, Bob Navarra, who is a therapist out of what is it, Santa Monica? No, San Carlos, California. San Carlos, California. You're in the right state. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Because we obviously know you, but our people don't. Okay. I'm sorry, Zach, but that's confidential. I can't oh, right. say information. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is about yeah. me. I guess I can do that. All right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm a therapist, certified gotten therapist, master trainer. I'm in that category. And I specialize in working in addiction treatment, and I've been doing this a long time. I've been in practice for 35 years, actually. That's insane. It's, it is insane. It is. <laughs> and the last... <laughs> I was listening to Ray Romano uh, on a comedy set the other day, and he was, he was back in the club that he kind of grew up in, and he was talking to the audience, and he was like, I have been working in this club longer than you've been alive. Like, I've been, I've been doing this stuff uh, this comedy gig in this space. It was really fascinating to hear him per put some perspective on it like that. Yeah. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I have a question, yeah. Bob, cause I don't, I don't know this, but what got you into working in addiction recovery and working with couples? Was it like, mm -hmm. which came first or did you evolve into addiction? It evolved actually. I was in practice for about five years and I looked at my practice and saw literally, I remember this quite literally, not figuratively, but this was the number. 80% of my clients had some alcohol or drug related issue or concern. Huh. And I was not prepared to deal with it. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. So yeah. that's when I sort of said, well, this is an area I wasn't originally interested in, to be honest with you, but uh, here it mm -hmm. is. So, so I, I got some training and got addicted to addiction. <laughs> Yeah. Learn what it is and how What's you can that like? work with it. 
Is that good? <laughs> I think that's being good. addicted. Yeah, because it's hard to get therapists involved in addiction treatment. It's hard to get couples and individuals into treatment because of the stigma usually attached with it. Yeah. 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 Well, you just threw out an interesting number. Well, first, let me back up and just tell our listeners that the the reason why we originally wanted to have you on, Bob, is that we've had so many requests from listeners who have written in with lots of questions. And so I just... I wanted to let our listeners know this is the direction that we're going is we're going to be talking about addiction and recovery. We're going to be taking a lot of questions that we've received over the last two years. Um, But uh, what would you say, you said 80% of your practice now 30 years ago was what you were seeing. Um, What, what, percentage do you think either just uh, uh, anecdotally or maybe you know the research anecdotally yeah I'm not sure that I'll go with what you say Zach (laughs) yeah (laughs) but what percentage of of couples are experiencing um, either drug or alcohol use misuse it's affecting the relationship in some way that's a Interesting question, because it's, it's probably more than the statistics indicate, which mm. seem to point towards two thirds of all American families have been impacted by addiction. Wow. Two thirds. So you look at, you know, three out of four people walking in your office probably have had some impact. Yeah. From various degrees, from little to a lot. And it's probably true, too, that uh, that people don't really tell the truth about their drinking. Mm. That's also true. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. one thing that's cool about Bob is that he, you, I don't mean, well, well, he, you, he, um, <laughs> wrote, a, wrote a curriculum that helps train clinicians deal with these issues in their office. Um, and I don't like we, most of who is listening is not quite clinicians. They're actual couples that are dealing with stuff. And so while I don't, while I do want to hear from your kind of your collected wisdom, I also want to know just kind of what gets you excited. You know, just imagine that the three of us are sitting around at a pub, just, well, maybe not a pub, but taking a walk in the sun. Yeah. And, and just talking about kind of what you're, what you're seeing, what you're thinking. I mean, again, we'll ask some questions, but what is it that yeah. kind of wakes you up when you think about um, actually being of help to couples um, in this space? Well, you know, the, the first workshop I wrote actually in this area was for couples and it's called Roadmap mm-hmm. to the Journey, which I'm currently actually sort of re-implemented. And it's a two-day retreat for couples uh, in recovery. So what I think about is that there are very little resources for individuals or couples that are interested in addressing relationship issues. And mm-hmm. so there's not a sort of a, a, a standard yet in the field that says this is a good thing to do. And what I'm hoping to do is change that standard. So we're moving from an individually only focus to a, a couple focus that says, well, let's look at the relationship. And that's what that's what really gets my motor running is this advocacy piece. And I'm very excited about the results. So let me let me ask you this question of um, so the, the traditional model is that if somebody goes into um, recovery or they're seeking help in some way, it's a very individualistic process. They're they're either doing like an out treatment or um, in treatment, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And so what makes it different when you're treating the couple? What is it about roadmap um, for the journey? or I guess the vision of treating couples together that has a greater impact or can change the process. There was some research that came out a while ago um, by Humphrey Moose and Cohen that looked at the single biggest predictor, single biggest predictor for successful outcomes in addiction or alcohol treatment that was limited to alcohol in this particular study is the relationship satisfaction. 
with mm-hmm. the partner, not just generic social relationships that was in there, but the single biggest predictor was relationship stability and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So for some reason uh, we haven't sort of incorporated that into our current treatment approaches to say, Instead, um, you need to work on your individual stuff until you're stable in your individual recovery. Then we can work on your relationship, which is typically too late for many couples who have the highest divorce rate. Does that. um, okay? so that's within the context of a marriage, right? Like so if I'm a if I'm a single guy or if I'm just a uh, maybe a single parent or something and I um, maybe I'm not married, Mm -hmm. does the does the notion of being in a satisfying relationship still contribute to you know, recovery success, or does the study you're talking about pretty much limited to marriage? It was limited to marriage. Yeah. So it's not Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's not a stretch, right. To say, you know, if you've got a stable relationship in your life and you're feeling pretty good in it, then obviously the odds of increased sobriety over time are increased. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I wonder what, I wonder if that's why like the, um, kind of the sponsor model works in AA, like that there's some sense of, a um, community or just a, a, a stable relationship, or at least with one person who's really committed to being, um, being gracious and just, and just and kind. And I don't know. And, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think the other part that the research doesn't really get to that I think is really crucial is that the emphasis typically is on the sobriety outcomes, which it's a good mm. study, right? So from that perspective, that's helpful, but really what my approach is, is beyond sobriety. It's like, uh, looking at what each individual needs for their own health and recovery and what the relationship needs, because the partner of somebody who's really struggling with a substance or a compulsive behavior has been traumatized. And now if their partner's in recovery, it's sort of, well, what about me? And mm-hmm. my approach includes, yeah, what about you? Let's talk about you and the impact of this on both of you and on your relationship. I remember you said, t- I took your workshop twice, I think. And I remember you saying that, um, Addiction is really hard for couples, but recovery can be harder. Yeah, that's right. There's a whole new set of problems. <laughs> yeah. The thing that's interesting is that typically doesn't occur is this notion of the trauma of recovery. Uh, those words yeah. tend not to go together. The trauma of addiction go together intuitively. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the trauma of recovery means, okay, now we have, we're in a whole new relationship, basically. and We don't know what to expect or how to operate together. That's yeah. what needs attention. So I'm curious, what does that look like if if a couple was seeking recovery together? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you mentioned that this is a weekend workshop, but then what about something that's longer term? Do you have a model that you use where you're you take a couple in and maybe are you working with each partner individually and then also together in couples therapy? No. Typically, uh, I work just with the couple and encourage them to find their individual support if they don't have that. Mm-hmm. And so the, awesome. the notion is, I, um, honestly, this is like recovery anarchy 101, because what I encourage couples to do with the right structure is often discouraged, I have to say. <laughs> One is, if you want your partner to know something about your recovery because it's important to you, you can ask or tell your partner. If you have questions about your partner's recovery because you don't understand, you can ask. Have you, is there a structure to talk about the impact of recovery? Have we ever talked about that as a couple? I think they ought to be doing that. So those are, those are three rules that uh, typically are not encouraged in individual support programs. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, I must be lucky because the only training that I have received is your training. Um, so I, I have, I have your version in my head rather than, uh, the other versions. Um, I have a question for you that came in from our listeners. What do you do when one partner is unwilling to seek help and the other partner is really encouraging them, um, to seek help. And probably it's going to be the person dragging their feet is the one who has, um, misuse or issues around alcohol or substance Mm -hmm. use, whatever it might be. So what do you do? Um, that's a listener question. Yeah, that's a good question. And I want to reframe it just for a second, because the experience I'm having is, that it's not a partner encouraging someone to seek help. It's almost like them demanding or oh. requiring that they seek help. It's not necessarily yeah, this gentle love. It's more like this exasperated, um, you know, exasperation, exasperated mm-hmm. exasperation. It's the, it's the, <laughs> <kind of thing. laughs> yeah. Followed quickly by despair and fear and hopelessness, right? Those, sure. The trio there. So I'm thinking um, it actually does work both ways though. Because I've also, I'll, I'll try to answer the question. Um, for the person actually in recovery, sometimes their partner isn't, uh, meaning person in recovery from an addictive disorder of some kind, whether it's behavioral or substance. Sometimes like they get it. It's like, wow, I need to really change my life and how we do things. And the partner say, hey, this is your problem. I'm not the one that's drinking or using Coke or whatever. And it's not mm-hmm. seen as a relationship issue. Right. Mm. So I'm thinking in either case, it's important for the partner who's concerned to say something like when I see this or these experiences and then kind of name specifically, you know, when you came home late last night, you said you'd be home at 10 and it was midnight past midnight. You know, I really worry. I struggle with the impact that alcohol is having on you and on me. And I would like it if, if we could do something about it. And then the partner says, I don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. then you're overreacting you, you're, you're right there's that you know i'm not sure i'm not your alcoholic father that all the things in the defensive yeah. reactions can kick in so the bind i know for the partner in those circumstances to say well i can't force you but doesn't mean i have to be silent either and i can't nag you into this mm-hmm. i think optimally all you can do is say once again i'm hurt by a concern i'm angry i'm frustrated i'm just letting you know and, and so that it doesn't go underground, you know, as yeah. you know, when, when issues go underground and we can't talk about it or name it, even maybe we can't talk about it, but if I can't even name it, then that feels like mm-hmm. it has power. I think that um, I worry about. Yeah. Boy, I really like the, the idea because oftentimes we find that there's really just one partner that wants to seek help. And this is just in general in our practice. Yeah. When people come to see us, I like to ask which one of you made the appointment and which one of you is just showing up for your partner because they asked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the idea that you're coming together and you're saying, we're, we're doing this together. This is our journey that we are taking on together. And I think that that can really help, um, you know, that you said there's a stigma yeah. in seeking help yeah. and cutting that stigma down, which is something I'm really um, trying to fight against as a therapist is breaking the stigma of people seeking help. I like that. Well, you know, I just actually gave the roadmap retreat um, at Hazelden Betty Fort a couple of weeks ago. So this is the Minnesota mothership version, right? And so I was talking with with Paul Anderson, the 
the director. You hear that, folks? We got the big time. Got I know. Big. I'm like really impressed. Well, I'm impressed that I was invited. <laughs> oh, so invited even is, better. You don't even have to like go seeking out a no, for once. <laughs> knock, 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 knock. You know, the treatment programs are not necessarily responding or even returning my phone calls. Hey, that's yeah. I want to suggest you think about. But the thing is, I was talking with Paul Anderson, who's who's the director of that program as a, a renewal center on, at my Hazleton campus. Right. And he said uh, something like this. You know, it's been five, seven years since we've had any couple anything. Mm. And so he initiated the saying, you know what, this is really important work. And he sat in for most of the workshop. Thank you, Paul. I love you. Paul. <laughs> and he said, wow, why we are not doing this. So this is yeah. something that needs attention. And it's, what's interesting to me is that when I actually say, here's what happens in a workshop like this, oftentimes couples and therapists will go, oh, we're not doing this. Why? And I go, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, that's great. So there, are they planning on adopting your, your format or are they just thinking, okay, the research is important. We need to be doing involving couples in recovery. Um, what's their plan? Well, I don't know their plan. Um, I invited to go back actually Valentine's weekend, Valentine's days weekend, however you say that. How do I say that Zach? Cause you don't have to say uh, Valentine's, Valentine's day weekend. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's it. Okay, so there. So I'll be back for that weekend. However, I'm um, collaborating with Santa Clara University and with Butler Research at Hazleton to begin some research that will be reviewed by Butler that might then open the door to Hazleton and other treatment programs to kind of say, what's the before and after? Mm-hmm. So the, the the structure of this is to give them a pretest about relationship satisfaction and some of the stuff that we do as gotten therapists. Do the workshop two weeks after that, give the uh, follow up questionnaires, and then two months after that, do the follow up and see if there's a connection between anything. <laughs> awesome, looking at efficacy, or um, I love that. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Um, yeah. In terms of, we're talking a lot about couples that are in recovery, but if if again we're talking about couples that are still trying to kind of crack the code or curb use, and maybe it's one of them, both of them, who knows, is, I I feel like I heard you say one time, you can't really do couples work when one of the people um, is still struggling with addiction or abuse. Is that does that sound right? Or does, am I? No, after after totally the addiction? You're confusing me with an imposter. No, I think it's just the opposite. I think that couples work, uh, actually in the research, it's been found to be more effective to move people into recovery than individual work. Mm. Why is that? Because we have partners in a structure to kind of say, so, uh, so you found the vodka bottle behind the toilet. Uh, let's talk mm. about that. That I might not have heard from the person who left the vodka bottle behind the toilet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with the stages of change, we start with this. I don't have a problem to, all right, maybe there's something there to, well, if I do have a problem, what can I do about it? To now I'm ready to do something about it. Now I'm ready to maintain that. So it's a process that is actually facilitated with the couple's work. Wow. 
What would you recommend? So if, if our listeners are listening to this podcast and they're thinking, maybe, maybe it's time to see someone, mm-hmm. um, what, what do they need to be looking out for? Because we oftentimes will tell our listeners, if you're having relationship issues, do not go to a generalist, go to somebody who is highly specialized as a couples therapist. So what should our listeners be looking for when they're seeking help and they're ready to take that next step, knowing that there is some active addiction or recovery or whatever they're looking for um what do they need to be looking out for (laughs) here's why i'm laughing um and i shouldn't laugh because this is probably going to sound really bad but uh, i think most therapists are really undertrained in this absolutely and don't know what to look for or how to help couples sort this through so Mm -hmm. so if you can find an addiction specialist that would be good there are as you know, listservs that put down people's specialties. And if they're listing addiction legitimately, then they would have a sense about when to be concerned. Because here's what we've learned. Because okay. here's the thing that kind of blew my mind uh, when this statistic came out a couple of years ago. So most people with a substance issue actually don't have an addiction. Most people with a substance-related problem don't even meet the criteria for a use disorder. But it's mm-hmm. problematic. So... There's that problematic area. Then there's an actual use disorder, which means you're meeting criteria mm-hmm. to be diagnosed with mild, moderate, or severe of from whatever substance. Then at the severe end, uh, you probably have an addiction. Mm-hmm. That's different than a use disorder. And this is what blew my mind. So I'm eventually getting to the point. 70% of people who are diagnosed with alcohol use disorder today will not meet that diagnosis in four years. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wait a minute, I thought alcoholism is indelible, like you're stuck in it. Turns out, no, they're just misusing alcohol. It has not followed into this addiction pattern where the brain circuitry is involved. So, mm-hmm. so in my assessment, I'm trying to figure out of couples, individuals with substance issues or behavior problems like you know sexual dysregulation or uh, gambling, Whatever mm-hmm. is trying to figure out, well, where on the continuum do you fall? So it's problematic. Mm-hmm. So education could be enough to help people figure out, okay, so I'm drinking at risk levels. So what therapists can do, and I realize this is not for therapists, but <laughs> I'll say it anyway, um, is to use the audit, the A-U-D-I-T. And that's a screening. It's a 10-item questionnaire. It's non-proprietary, developed by the World Health Organization. And look at the scores and there's a free manual you can get to determine kind of on this continuum where people fall. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. and then the, and then the intervention or the approach is going to be based on, is it a use disorder? Is it an addiction? So hopefully uh, sort of on the ground therapist can just be aware of that continuum and when to read. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. audit though, it probably again, presumes that people are going to tell you the truth or tell the assessment, the truth. That's true. Yeah, that's true. The hardest part. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, again, I just think it's, it's funny, you know, when we do our individual sessions, sometimes we'll say, um, so how much do you drink? And they'll say, oh, I drink three or four, uh, you know, nights a week, kind of couple beers, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's maybe six. Right. And then you ask the spouse, how much does your partner drink? And they'll go, oh, probably six, six beers, five nights a week, you know? And it's always this like sort of, um, 
gap. There's always a gap, isn't there? And that's why it's so cool to have the couple in the room say, okay, you have different perspectives. So let's talk what they are and and what would it mean to you if. Yeah. I think if you do nothing other than just have a conversation about the impact of this thing and the differences people have in their perspective, it takes it out of the shadows, so to speak, and puts it present. And, you know, the other thing I've I've learned, too, is that um, people aren't necessarily lying or defensive about their drinking necessarily. I don't that isn't always the case. Mm-hmm. And I've had a number of people when I say, well, here's the safe levels of drinking as science seems to point to right now. They go, oh, well, I'm way over that. Mm-hmm. And that, with that comes, you know, potential harm. And then they mm-hmm. moderate their drinking so they can actually control it. If they're, if they're on that end of the continuum where they can do that. If they're in the addiction yeah. phase, yeah, not so much. What if there was an easy way to achieve connection without having to do a ton of work? What if you could make just a few small changes that helped you feel more alive, awake, and aware? Well, we're convinced that there is and that you can because we have worked with hundreds of couples. We've poured over reams of research. We've even experienced change in our own marriages. And time and time again, if we have learned anything, it's this. You do not have to stay stuck. That is why we created Marriage in Motion. It's a video series for couples, 16 videos with corresponding activity sheets because we want for you to take the information and the research that we have poured over and put it into action in your own relationship. Marriage for Motion is available now. Go to forbetter.us and for less than $300, you get the entire video series for a lifetime. We also have a guarantee that if you don't experience small changes in your relationship that have a big impact, we'll give you your money back. Check it out at forbetter.us. We'd love for you to try the Marriage in Motion video series for couples. Let me ask you this, Bob. There's a book that I often will recommend to clients, and you might be familiar with it. It's called Almost Alcoholic. Do you know this book? I don't know the book. Uh, it's these two study. It's these two guys out of Princeton, and basically what they did was they kind of began to define this range that they were calling almost. Yeah. And on like say on the left, on the left there was what's called normal social drinking, yeah. and on the right was sort of diagnosed alcoholism. And then most people fall in this gigantic gray area in between, yeah. which maybe the sort of thing that you're talking about. And their basic premise is that no matter where you are on in, in the giant gray area, your your responsibility is to move left. That's kind of the theme of the book is how do you move left yeah. toward social drinking? Um, and it seems like that has often given some hope to some of my clients because they don't have to bear the the kind of stigma of, is it too much? Or is it like, is it too much? Cause my husband says it's too much, or is it too much because science says it's too much. I can always move left. Moving right. left is always good, yeah. a good, good choice to make. Um, is that kind of what you're describing? It is. When you talk and about? actually I have a, a series of slides in the training called almost alcoholic. And maybe I got it from that. I didn't read the book, <laughs> but it's the concepts uh, that have to do with just, yeah. Misuse of alcohol. And, you know, we look at the increase of, Alcohol-related deaths have uh, increased by 40% in the last decade, if not more. And it isn't because people are addicted. It's because they're drinking too much. Mm-hmm. Most people die from alcohol use, not because they're addicted, but because of the medical consequences that we're now discovering. 200 medical conditions associated with alcohol use. Even yeah. at so-called safe levels, it could be problematic. Yeah. Hmm. 
Um, I, I have a question before it falls out of my head. We were talking, Bob, you had said about just having a dialogue with your partner. And we're big fans of open-ended questions as Gottman uh, certified therapists. But what would be some open-ended questions that our listeners could have if they're driving in the car on a road trip or they're with their partner cooking dinner? What would be great open-ended questions to just open this up as a dialogue in their in their household about their use or misuse or impact on the relationship? Um, that could just get the conversation started. Okay. Uh, one would be, what's wrong with you? <laughs> that's going to be in your head, but that's not what you should say. That comes out of your lips. Why are you drinking Listerine? Oh, yeah, this is so right. weird. Yeah, when is this going to stop? What is it going to take? So those are the thoughts that partners often have when there's concerns, right? So the open-ended mm -hmm. questions you want to get to are probably starting with your, I, I guess, I mean, every couple is going to be different, I imagine, but... Um, it starts with, you know, here's my perspective. Alcohol seems to be filtering into our relationship and I'm worried about it. Um, oh, here we go. I got to give you three good questions. Oh, um, okay. Uh, and this is actually part of the trade do with, with therapists, but partners can ask the same questions. Like on a scale of one to 10, how concerned are you about your drinking? 10 being the most, one being not at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, 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 mm -hmm. I hope this doesn't sound like being a, being a therapist, but. How concerned well, I, are you? I love that question. In fact, when a couple comes in and somebody says, I'm really worried about her drinking and da da da, da and she did da, 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 or he, 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 whatever. I will usually turn to him and go, are you worried about your drinking? Are you concerned about your, like, like how, how should, cause I never want to just pile on with a complainer. I want to make sure that there's a, that there's some, some sort of mutual place to, yeah. to begin. And if the, and if the person who's, who's got the use issue isn't concerned, then, then you have to kind of get, get underneath that, right? Well, and to get underneath that, a really good follow-up question is um, if you do the one to 10 thing, yeah. some version of it's like, well, what person is not three? They didn't say one. Maybe they'll say three. You know, yeah. So what puts it at three? Right. Mm -hmm. And what would it take to bump it up to five or six? Or down mm. to two. Or, yeah, or the, or the other way. So you kind of, so if you don't want to do that, sort of the, the one to 10 thing, it feels too awkward or something you just say well, too clinical yeah. yeah when are you can are there times when you're concerned mm. what when have yeah. you been concerned you know if you've been concerned mm -hmm. i like that one question that i wrote down as i was thinking i put you on the spot so i probably should have given you my question first is um do you think that uh our relationship is negatively impacted by one or both of our use or whatever it might be. Um, how do you think our relationship is impacted by our substance use? And I think that might be an interesting conversation. I've had a lot of couples that have said, we love it. Uh, some couples will say we, we love to get stoned and have sex because yeah. it makes us it feel better. I mean, we have a better relationship because of it. Mm -hmm. um, or some person might say, you know, when you take a muscle relaxer on a Friday night, you are totally numb to me. And I absolutely hate that you are not present for me or for our kids or whatever it might be. But I think that's a great question to start off with. Is how, how is our relationship impacted by our, our use? Yeah, both negatively and positively. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a question treatment programs actually ask oftentimes. So I'll have people write out scenarios like, what are the positive aspects of using? What are the negative aspects? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I have another question that came up. This is taking us in a little bit of a different road, but it's more specific to clients um, and also to people who have written in, which is the boundaries that you play as uh, having adult children who um, are negatively impacted with um, their journey, if there is a journey. But there seems to be, um, especially with some clients that I have seen, it's very difficult to... um, create a healthy boundary between mom and dad and an adult child um, who might be addicted to meth or heroin or cocaine or whatever it might be. Uh, Do you have any support or any guidance that you might be able to give to parents who are struggling with their uh, adult children? Oh, okay. It's off because you're a couples therapist. Well, yeah, but you know, I always think, Family-wise, relationship-wise, you know, yeah. you know, all of that is important to address. And I think you have to kind of look at resources. I think, um, you know, one option for if your if parents are really concerned about their adult children would be to consider doing an intervention. Mm-hmm. And interventions are not the kind of like blindsiding people and having them step into a room of family and then feel like, Oh my God, what did I step into? I'm not talking about yeah. that kind of intervention. There's interventions that have sort of evolved into much more, I would kind of say humane or relationally oriented. So the technical term would be something like systemic family interventions. And what that means are versions of an educator who sits with the family and gets their concerns and addresses the issues for everybody, not just the person with the substance. So it's kind of like okay. a workshoppy thing. And then people make commitments that they feel ready to do so to change their own life. Mm. Yeah. So systemic family interventions are one option. Mm-hmm. And another option would be sort of less intensively would be just to do what I suggested earlier is to express concern. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have you considered what would it take? Is there any way we can support you with moving towards help? Mm-hmm. And then here's the hard part is, you know, it's, it, this is not a term I particularly like, but the so-called codependent enabling concept right. is right. stepping back from uh, allowing the addiction to go unchecked because you're, you're not taking away the consequences. So it's really, really, really hard for parents who are mm-hmm. concerned and love their adult children to not try to fix them. I don't, I want to know why you don't particularly like that term codependent because it's so ingrained in kind of the cultural vernacular. It is. It is. People, people want to go, well, of course I'm codependent, but talk, free them from that or, or rather provide some perspective that maybe would, would help relax that stigma. I'm really glad you asked me that question because that's the other thing. Well, we're changing language about addiction. And so if I'm writing an article or an abstract or something, the language for addiction is stay away from the word alcoholic substance abuser, substance abuse, and use alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder. So language mm-hmm. communicates a lot. So mm-hmm. if somebody's in a relationship with a partner who has a substance issue, we automatically, it seems, assign them this label of codependent. And that means there's something wrong and sick about your behavior. And I think mm-hmm. it could pathologize people in a way that's not that helpful. So a mm-hmm. term I want to add <laughs> is uh, an emerging term I'm starting to see is secondhand harm. Mm. All that means is I've been impacted by my partner's use of whatever, and there's negative consequences. And it's not because I'm a pathological person that's drawn to this. It's because addiction creates bad consequences for partners. Mm -hmm. So secondhand harm and 
Honestly, I also talk about the, the likelihood even of post-traumatic stress disorder. So when the partners, let's see, their addicted partner didn't get home by 10 o'clock PM when they said they would be uh, after their meeting and the partner at home floods with all this anxiety and worry. I don't mm-hmm. think that's codependent. I think that's post-traumatic stress. Same mm-hmm. thing. I've been lied to before. This feels really familiar. Maybe mm-hmm. he, she's relapsed. You know? So I think those are normal and understandable reactions and it's better to broaden an understanding from pathology to saying, well, this is a reaction from trauma and I need to learn to manage my reactions and not step in to try to do things that are unhealthy on the one hand. On the other hand, it's quite understandable why people have these reactions. And I don't think that's pathology. Hmm. Uh, this might sound a little too broad. Uh, I'm imagining like these these quizzes that you take in Men's Health or Cosmo magazines or <laughs> any of those crappy magazines that you can <laughs> spend your 20s anyway. flipping through. I've been in yeah. Men's Health before. Yeah. Oh, you have. You have been in Men's Health. Yeah. Or my maybe physique, you both were. was featured in... Uh, oh, it yeah, no, it was definitely. Well. <laughs> uh, but what what are some signs or maybe some indicators that someone is has a substance use issue, whatever it might be? Hmm. Okay, so I guess it would start with the role and the the role that it plays in the person's life. So if it's working towards being what's called a kind of an organizer in the person's world and there's negative consequences starting to come back, then I think that's an indication that something's off. Doesn't mean it's addiction, just means, okay, my relationship with this substance is changing. And how do I feel about that? Okay. That's an awesome question to ask yourself. Is uh, So just as an example, <laughs> I mean, I joke, but this, these last two months have been absolutely bonkers for me. And I've been on vacation. I've been moving. I have been all over the place. My wine consumption has gone up so dramatically. And the question that I might ask myself is what is the role of this alcohol in my life right now? Right. Is that a question that I, okay. Yeah. How's it working for me? And you know, the, the guidelines for this sort of thing are, are, are there in place to kind of say, well, for women, and it's different for in our binary concept of gender, the, mm-hmm. the guidelines for men and women are different. So mm-hmm. with women, we're encouraging the research is saying probably, you know, no more than one drink at a time, <laughs> no more than seven in a week. And with okay. wine, that would mean five ounces. That's like five ounces is an alcohol equivalent of one drink. (laughs) (laughs) I know my my mom's listening. And so I'm just going to out her that when she pours a glass of wine, it goes all the way to the top. And I have to remind her that that's a 12 ounce glass. And (laughs) so there might be a couple of drinks plus. Yeah, that's a two, that's two, two glasses right there, mom, even though it fits in one wine glass. Like that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So one at a time and no more than seven a week. What what is it for me? For men, it's just so unfair. For men, it's uh, the guidelines are saying probably, you know, no more than two in a drinking occasion. The, the official guideline, well, I'll finish that thought, and no more than 14 in a week. It is grossly unfair. <laughs> but the reason is, is that um, female bodies tend to process alcohol differently. So the enzyme that breaks alcohol down is less efficient in women. There's less mm-hmm. water typically in a woman's body than a man. So there's less dilution and the fat to muscle ratio tends to be different. So that alters metabolism. So if you have if men and women have the same 
at the same weight, same amount of food in their belly and drink the same amount of alcohol, her blood alcohol concentration will be higher. Yeah. Period. Mm-hmm. Most likely. Okay. Okay. What might be some other questions that people can ask themselves to see if maybe they're that maybe they might have uh, an issue with substances? I like thinking about it too. Sorry, Bob, to cut you off, but I like thinking about it too, not just as a, um, like as, but at, literally as a relationship. If you were in a relationship with this guy named Al and he, um, he took your money and he made you feel like shit and he uh, made you late for work and he uh, he got in between you and your wife and he sometimes he would um, he, sometimes he was cool to hang out with and he was nice and you enjoyed being near him. But mostly he just made you feel groggy and stupid. Would you stay in relationship with this guy? You know, um, and most people would say, no, I, I don't think I would. Right. Um, but 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 maybe your relationship is more is more familiar. Right. It's like, oh, I get to see him every every couple of weeks and we go out and we have a great time. We laugh a lot and um, come home. You know, there's just a I think there's a way to personify it that sometimes can help people understand the difference between, you know, uh, well, just just kind of where they are on that scale. If it's one to ten, you know, what would it, what's it like to be in relationship with this person and the consequences that come with it? How, how can people reach you if they want your support, your help? Um, how can they find you? How can they learn more about your workshops? Do you have more workshops coming I up do. where people yeah. can come? Awesome. Well, tell our listeners about how they can get a hold of you. Okay. So I've got three, three different websites that do different things. I've got drrobertnavara.com. That's sort mm-hmm. of the generic number of workshops I do for couples. And then um, I have a two websites that sound the same couplerecovery.org which is information and resources and a new one I plan to be launching next week uh, couplerecovery.com which will be online videos for therapists and for couples so it'll be training for therapists who want to learn about addiction and how to do assessments and then just resources for couples of how to, how to develop a couple recovery that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, that's really great. So those are your three websites. And then just uh, our listeners know that we we will do a virtual therapy with those that we're licensed. Do you ever meet with couples? Oh, gosh, that's a, an interesting question, actually. Do you ever meet with couples virtually? Um, virtually, no. <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. Yes, I do. Um, I did a, a marathon session with a couple recently and uh, did a follow up yeah. session. Um, so I met with them for 15 hours right. uh, and then did a follow-up session online. Mm-hmm. And uh, I offer actually marathon therapy and workshops out of my office. So Roadmap for the Journey is now going to be available maybe bi-monthly, limited to three couples. Wow. And just very cool. Wow. Santa Clara. San Carlos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. San, it's like Santa Clara, but it's San Carlos. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bob. I hope that we can generate some traffic for you, but also mostly just um, some good perspective for these couples out there that are asking these questions on a reg- on the regular. There's a lot of information out there that can be really, really helpful. And now that we're ending, the gardener's stopping. So yeah. we're all queued up together, apparently. 
Yeah, we are. Oh, I do have one more question, Bob, before you go. So, um, Zach, you had mentioned the book, Almost Alcoholic. We love giving resources to our couples. Do you have any books or authors um, or anything, I guess, other than your websites that you would recommend? If you're interested in learning more, go to this website, read this book, listen to this podcast, whatever it might be. Well, you know, as as a website uh, that could be really full of information is the National Institute for Alcohol abuse and addiction or alcoholism it's n-i-triple-a okay and that sounds really techy but really it's it's got really good resources both for counselors and for couples just to understand a lot more about alcohol and then uh the national institute for drug abuse is not nida.org it's got something else but if you look up national institute for drug abuse that also is another really really good resource just to get information on different substances and resources that are available yeah i've got two which uh, actually come from my clients um who have i've I've had multiple people recommend a book called sober curious which is just uh it's just an opportunity to kind of explore what does it mean to think about being in a, like being sober, mm-hmm. basically sober. Curious. And then the other one is called the naked mind. It's by a woman named Annie Grace, who is um, really kind of the champion, at least the online champion for alcohol free living. And so she's got a couple of books, but also an online presence that um, is usually supported by community and, you know, Facebook and videos and that sort of thing. So if, if indeed people are looking for, different resources. Those are a few. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, guys. Thanks so much. <laughs> See you next Thanks, time. Bob. Alrighty. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Marriage Therapy Radio. In case you're interested, Bob Navarra is available. He gave you his three separate websites. I did want to reiterate the three books that were mentioned as far as Zach's uh, perspective, but it's called The Naked Mind, Almost Alcoholic, and Sober Curious are the three books he recommended. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of your time and attention, making your relationship better today than it was yesterday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.